Well, good morning again. Welcome to the Long Story Short Sermon Series. Long Story Short Sermon Series. Did not expect that to be that difficult. All right. Um, As we are going through this, uh, what you'll find is we are making a turn. We're making a turn in this journey, in this story, from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Now, if you haven't been with us, as this is your first week here, uh, I want you to know that you, you can jump in with us. Uh, I want to catch you up as to where we've been. First, we started uh, at the beginning. Uh, so Act chapter 1, if you want to see this, is four different acts. Act chapter 1 was creation, and we talked about how it all began, and we spent a few weeks there. And then after that, we moved on to Act chapter 2, the fall of how it all kind of came apart. And so we looked at that. We looked at the Old Testament when we see the judges and we see kings and we see uh, the land as people, as Joshua took them into the promised land, that all of that was going to crumble and fall away. And yet God was going to have a redeeming plan, a restoration plan. And that's where we are turning into this week, Act, chapter, Act 3, which is redemption, how it all turned around. And we'll begin to kind of see through the New Testament lens of what God has been doing to kind of tell that story. And then Act chapter 4 will be restoration and how it will all never end. And when we get into the Advent series, we're really going to be looking at that and talking about what God is up to. So we have this epic story that is being told, and we're trying to share that in about 17 weeks. We're trying to make our way through all of Scripture. Uh, My my wife just, she brought me some water. I have to tell you this quickly. Um, my wife just brought me a bottle of water because I was just doing the announcements a few minutes ago and kind of coughed up and got kind of choked up. I've got a cold. My, my wife literally went out to the back to get a, a bottle of water, couldn't find one, then went further to the kids' area, couldn't find one, knew that there was one uh, in my vehicle. So she just went, ran out into the rain, got a water bottle, and then made her way all the way back here. This woman loves me. She loves me so much. (laughs) Sharing stories or sharing your faith should be as easy as that. It should be as easy as about talking about something or someone that you love. People actually expect you to talk about the things that you love. People actually expect you to talk and share stories about the things that you are excited about. And so I'm going to share very quickly with you a story two years ago, two summers ago, and I've shared pieces of this before. Our family went on a cross-country trip. This was 2015. Uh, My sister was moving from California to North Carolina, and so she asked us if we would be willing if we flew out there and then make this cross-country trip to drive their vehicles back across the country. I've got a few. This this is my family slideshow. You get to be invited in on. So this is, if you can see him, this is my crazy brother-in-law, John Mark, And that is the view of almost my entire trip, is the back of that camper right there. And um, we followed that camper for close to 4,500 miles. And so we made our way all the way across the country. Uh, This knucklehead wasn't all that we got to see. If you look at the next slide, um, this is uh, on the back side of Yosemite. Uh, There are my two daughters there on the right-hand side, Dalia and Hazel. Uh, taking in all of God's glory. It was a beautiful spot. Um, It's a little bit of a precipice. They probably shouldn't have been out quite as close to the edge as they were there, Uh, but we've got a picture to to show for it. So that's cool. Uh, The next one, here they are. Uh, There's little Maya at the time. Uh, This is in front of, oh, the geyser that shoots up. I had to write up my notes. Old Faithful, thank you. 
uh, that, that, that they're saying there, it, it doesn't erupt as often as you think it might. And so we had to wait a lot longer with kids than we thought. And so here they are waiting. They're very excited about that. Uh, the next slide, this is little Elias at the time, two years ago. Uh, this is at my sister's house in St. Louis. So we'd made our way almost across the country, and she had drawn that on the wall for us as uh, we were coming in. She had one of those chalkboard walls. Uh, she was saying, welcome to uh, St. Louis, and he's enjoying it, that cheese stick in all of its glory. And before I show you the next, oh, go back, don't show that slide yet. Go back, go back, yep, there we go. It's all right. So the next slide that I'm about to show you, those of you who saw it, you saw it, that's fine. We put I don't know, a couple hundred pictures online as we were traveling across the country of all the gorgeous things that we saw, of all the neat places that we had been, all of the, you know, the glacier lakes that we had experienced, or the, I mean, just some really incredible stuff. But the next picture that I'm going to show you had more interaction on social media than any, I mean, by far, than anything else that we posted the whole time that we were driving across the country. And the caption that I put with it is, we have one more mountain to climb, but the reward at the top is worth it. Now you can show the slide. I don't know if you can see this very well. Can you see what's at the top of the mountain? It's a Chick-fil-A sign at the top of the mountain. So we had more interaction, more people excited about the fact that there was a Chick-fil-A on our trip than the fact that we went to the border of Canada and be able to see Glacier National Park, which is an incredible place. And people are like, yeah, that's nice. Oh, you went to Chick-fil-A. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's worth it, somebody said. So if you didn't know it, Chick-fil-A is coming to Buffalo. It's coming, yeah. Again, Glacier National Park. Yeah, okay. Chick-fil-A is coming to Buffalo. And there are those of you who are so excited about this, and there are those of you who could care less, okay? But there's something about Chick-fil-A. If you've never lived in a town that has a Chick-fil-A, it's a very exciting thing. And so when the grand opening is announced, <coughs> and I don't know exactly when that will be, when the grand opening is announced, there will be many people, and maybe you'll be some of them, that will sleep for days near uh, the Chick-fil-A opening, and there'll be a line going all the way down the street for the possibility that the first, I believe it's 50 to maybe 100 customers, will earn the right to Chick-fil-A for a year. So you can, ooh, yes. Very excited about this. And so some of you will see those lines. And some of you will see those idiots laying on the sidewalk in the middle of winter, and you'll say, what is going on with these people? And the rest of you will look and you say, oh, that's worth it. Oh, that's absolutely worth it. And there's something that's compelling about that idea. There's something about that story. And, and those of you who have been to a Chick-fil-A, you know the lines, even though it's not opening day anymore, the lines will always be busy. The, the drive-through will always be crowded. And the reality is there's only one thing on the menu. There's nothing else. It's just chicken. Sometimes they put a bun on it. Sometimes they put a pickle on it. Sometimes they cut it all up and sometimes it's nuggets. But it is chicken. That's it. There's nothing else. And I... I I'm, I'm with you. I actually really enjoy it. I think it's very exciting. But when you see those lines, some of you will say, that is the biggest waste of time I've ever seen. And then others of you will be very excited about that and say, man, I'm so glad that those lines are here in Buffalo because Buffalo is embracing 
Chick-fil-A and they want it to be part of our culture. And that's fine and that's great. But the reality is when you talk about the things that you love, what you'll find is you want to answer some of the misunderstandings or distractions about the thing that you love. So if it's Chick-fil-A and someone says, that is the biggest waste of time, why would anyone wait in line that long for chicken? And you'll always say, well, let me tell you, the line is part of the experience. While you wait in line, a, a woman will stand there with an iPad instead of you having to go to the thing. She'll take your order there and talk to you in the car and walk your car all the way around. Or when you're waiting in line, they'll give you something to drink while you're waiting in line. Or, or, or you've got this huge line of people, and once you get your meal, they're going to come and they're going to bring it to your table. That's all the busyness, the activity of the whole thing is part of the experience. And when you're talking about something or someone you love, you're going to actually deal with and make some disclaimers and actually deal with some of the things, the stereotypes that are actually messed up about the things that you love, those misunderstandings you're actually going to deal with. You're going to address them. You see, it's no different when we're talking about things of Christ and talking about Jesus. You don't, uh, when we talk about him, first of all, the question is, are you compelled to talk about him? When Chick-fil-A opens here in town, how many conversations will you have that week about Chick-fil-A versus how many conversations will you have that week about Jesus Christ? And if the thing that you love, the thing that you are excited about, actually it's not weird or odd or strange for you to talk about the thing that you love. The people who know you and the people who are around you regularly would expect that you would talk about the things that you love. That's not weird. That's actually very understandable. And so some of you have been, maybe you're at a new workplace, you've been there for about a year, and you suddenly discover that someone else in your place of work is a believer. You're like, man, that is great. It took you a year to realize that someone at your workplace is a believer are you, either one of you, actually talking about the thing, the one that you love? And so we're going to talk about that this morning. The reality is the one that we love, he is endless. He is limitless. He is the deep ocean that we dive into. And, and there are so many things that we could talk about and continue to talk about. There's an endless supply of stories about the greatness of God or the love of Christ and what he has done for you and done for me. And I've found that the things that we love, we actually don't just tell people the way that it is. We actually ask them, hey, what do you think about Chick-fil-A? What do you think about, fill it in, whatever is your thing that you're excited about. What do you think about CrossFit? Or what do you think about, and you fill it in. And the reality is, is they have some understanding of what's going on, and you can actually interact with that <coughs> and talk about those things. You can discuss them. You can deal with some of their misunderstandings. But the easiest way to get that conversation started is, what do you think about? And then you fill it in. What do you think about things of Christ? So this morning, as we dive in here, you'll find that some of the conversations that you have or have had, what do you think about Jesus? What have you heard about Jesus? And they start laying out the Jesus that they understand. They start laying out the gospel that they understand. They start talking about the scripture as they know it. And you go, you know, to be honest with you, I don't like that Jesus either. Or, or, or the way that you understand the Bible to be written is not something that I would be excited about or not something that I would, I would follow either. 
And so as we dive into this this morning, what we want to look at and what we want to talk about is one particular distortion of the long story short of Jesus. From talking to your family, family members, talking to people at Tim Hortons, talking to people here at the church, this is what I've found to be, and I think you would find this to be some universal things of the storyline of what we understand Jesus to be. And so I'm going to try to demonstrate this here and do the best that I can to make it visible for all of you to see it. So here we are. We're on earth. And here we are. We're all together. And we start making our way across here. And we see, here's me. I'll draw myself. It looks just like me. I should draw some biceps, but I'll do that later. <laughs> and here I am. And I go through life, and here's this line, right? Here's this line of all the things that happen in my life. And, and for the most part, as I'm here on earth, I'm trying to do everything that I can to live above this line. I don't want to be below this line. I want to be able to, to live my life in a way that people would, would respect me, live my life in a way that people would understand that I, I, I want to be better good than bad. And we, at one point, we get to the end of our lives, and there's the, God closes the curtain on this world that we live in, and we see two different examples of where things go, what distinct directions things will go, and that is heaven and hell. And heaven is this place where there are angels and there are uh, music being played, there are harps, there are songs, there are singing, and hell is this place where there's this this subterranean torture chamber where God, he, he takes, and he, he's this sadistic God who wants to hurt those who feel differently about him. And so you spend your whole life trying to make sure that you stay above this line because anytime you come below this line, you spend your whole life saying, how can I better get myself above this line so that I will be in heaven when I die? This is actually one of the biggest misrepresentations and of Christ-like living, and of the long story short that is recognized by most people. This destiny of heaven and hell being these two opposites and, and the way that they interact with one another. And this is what people actually think that you believe. In fact, some of you are looking at this this morning going, um, I actually think this is what I believe. And it comes back to, and you need to understand, that there's a misunderstanding of the root of the gospel. And here's the biggest problem. Here's the main problem with this concept, with this version of the story. That is the Bible. The Bible is the biggest problem with that. And the actual life and teaching of Jesus Christ will fight against this view of the greater story. Will you turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, this morning. Gospel of John chapter 1. We'll be in the New International Version this morning. If you've got uh, a Bible, if you don't have your own Bible, there's a Bible in front of you. It's a black Bible. Uh, in that one, it is on page 1109 if you want to make your way there. If you're using an iPad or an iPhone or any type of smartphone, uh, U version is a good version to use. But I'll be in the New International Version this morning. So when we look at the Gospel of John, first of all, we have what are called the Synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These are three eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ. They tell it from different perspectives, different points of view. They say that this is how Jesus was born. This is how he walked the earth. 
Matthew writes to an audience of those who were Jews, those who would understand a lot of the background. That's why he starts with the genealogy. Uh, He wants to connect the story of the New Testament to what they had seen in the Old Testament. He wants to make this thread of the, the coming king, the Messiah. He wants to make that the first thing that is noticed by those readers. Then the Gospel of Mark is just an eyewitness account, and it goes one thing after another. You'll find uh, that it's almost like one long run-on sentence that he just, like, like the news would be, that evening news, it just happens so quickly, so fast, and that he just makes his way through very quickly all that happened. Luke, his Gospel account is more meticulous. The, the authors would say that he is either a lawyer or a doctor, or even both. That he just took uh, very meticulous notes. He gives us some details that some of the other Gospels don't give. But then we come to the Gospel of John. And he is not telling the same narrative that the other three Gospels are. He's dealing with the same person, Jesus Christ. He's dealing with the same time period of when he walked on the earth and when his ministry existed. But he's not having the same approach. No, his approach is different. This theme that he gives in the first 18 verses, it's an introduction to the theme of the rest of the book of John. It is a briefing. He's giving in this first chapter, he's giving a briefing as to what he will do in the rest of the gospel, the rest of his writings as he covers the whole story of Christ. He gives in this briefing of who Jesus is, who it is that we are dealing with, the plan for his life, and then he says, I will tell you the rest of the story in detail. So verses 1 through 5, the Apostle John considers the deity of Christ. He says, He is the Word. He was with God. He created everything. He is the source of light. He is the source of life. And we're going to spend some time with that this morning. And then John shows the reaction of the world and how they responded to him. And that this light and how it came into the world. So here really is, and we'll find in this gospel, here really is the problem with the timeline that I've driven, uh, written on the board here next to us. And that is your first point. If you're using your white sheets of paper this morning, that is your first fill-in for you this morning. Jesus is greater than time. Jesus is greater than time. If you've got your Bibles open and you're ready, here we go. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. Now, we, it wasn't so long ago that we started in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and this should sound familiar to you because John is using the same type of language that we see in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we see this connection between what John is writing. He is saying not only was he there in the beginning, but he was the one who created all things in the beginning. So why choose the word word? And you'll find in your translations, you'll see the word word is capitalized. The word word, the author wants us to know that only Jesus and his teachings, not just what we talk about. We don't just follow the good teachings of Jesus and what he says, but more importantly, it is who we talk about. And that is why that is capitalized, because the teachings of Jesus and the person of Jesus are all wrapped together in one. He is the logos, is what is the word that is used in the Greek. He is all of that, all encompassed together. So he capitalizes it here, and he says, Jesus is the word. So in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. He was God in the beginning. This statement means 
that in the beginning of time, before the heavens and the earth existed, because we find that there in Genesis chapter 1, we'll see the heavens were created and the earth was created and all that was in it. And we even see that light was created. And we're going to see this connection again in John, (coughs) the way he goes into the way that light was. So Jesus was there. There was never a time when Jesus was not. Because before the beginning, he was there. Now, you can't really wrap your mind around that concept. You can go back 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years. Your your mind might be able to grab a hold of that. But you start going back a million years, a billion years, and you start saying God was there, Jesus was there before time existed, and it all starts to get a little fuzzy for us. Everything that we know is built around time. It is the only constant that we have in this world, seemingly. Whether you are rich or poor, time continues to march on. You don't have any more of it than I do. It is a constant for all of us. And yet that constant, that very constant, is what the Gospel of John says, Jesus is greater than that constant. He is bigger than that. It's beyond my comprehension. Jesus, the Word, was before the beginning. So Jesus is greater than time. Secondly, if you're filling in with us today, Jesus is greater than space. Jesus is greater than space. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that had been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Here's this connection again to Genesis chapter 1, where God created all things, and one of the things he created was light. Something that we see every day, every morning, the sun comes up, we see light all around us. And it says here that he is all things. He is greater than all things. You see how simple, actually, what John is writing. He states the first truth in the positive, and then he repeats it in the negative. He says the positive, all things were made through him. And then the negative, he says, and there was nothing that was made without him. All things were made through him, and yet there was nothing that was made without him. So what did he make? He made everything. He made all things. He made the tiny, tiniest cells. He made the smallest organisms, the ones that we're just learning about in the deepest of the sea. And he also made the biggest galaxies that we are just learning about, the skies that just open up and open up and open up. The farther we go, the bigger it is out there. And Jesus is greater than all of outer space. He made everything. He made man. And he made everything that man thinks up, he created ahead of time. The space that we are in right now was designed by a man who looked, he drew up blueprints. He said, this is a place where people can gather together to worship the Lord. And there's pillars that go up and there's trusses that go up. And all of that happened. And God created the person who made that. If you're familiar with a TV show that was popular a few years ago, it was called Trading Spaces. And so the idea behind that is (coughs) there are two families, and they trade spaces. And so they they trade either a bedroom for a bedroom. And so one family redesigns the other family's bedroom. And on the other side, that other family also redesigns the bedroom. They trade spaces. They do the same thing with a kitchen or a bathroom or a backyard. That's the whole idea, the concept behind that show. 
But you understand the space that we live in is not a traded space for God. Why? Because Jesus is greater than any of the spaces that we have, any of the locations that we see. He is greater, greater than anything we have seen. Thirdly, Jesus is greater than darkness. Jesus is greater than darkness. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, all the darkness in the world cannot extinguish light. Some of this should sound familiar to you because as we looked at last fall, last Christmas season, we had a sermon series we called He is Greater. And we talked about Jesus being greater than all of the things that we could possibly list. He is greater than the universe. He is greater than all mankind. He is greater than Melchizedek or any of the other high priests. He is greater. He is supreme. And there is no amount of darkness that can extinguish the light. We come into this Christmas season. There are Christmas commercials beginning to play. There are Christmas decorations for sale in the store now. It is all kind of coming on us. And as we remember that Christmas story, we see Jesus, this baby who is born in the manger, and in the darkness, King Herod tries to extinguish that light. But Jesus, that tiny baby, he is greater than that darkness. Now that Jesus, he grows up, he leads his ministry, and he becomes a man, and, and everything that tries to close in on him, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they try, to, what, they try to extinguish that light, but they cannot hold him because on the third day when they put him on a cross, he rose again from the dead, only that much brighter and stronger than he was before. They cannot extinguish the light. They did not succeed. All the darkness in the world cannot extinguish the light. Furthermore, the fourth point that we are making this morning, Jesus is, if you aren't picking up on it yet, Jesus is the light of the world. You see, this is what happens when Jesus enters the story. This is what happens when Jesus is born in the manger. This is what happens when you turn the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament. As Brian described last, last week, that one page, that one page in between, when you look at the difference between the two, this is what was broken and what was falling apart, and this is how it all turned around because Jesus now enters the scene. This is what splits the Bible into two parts. This is what splits history in two. Jesus. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. However, the world didn't even notice him. The world didn't even notice his light. That's your next fill-in. Verse 10 says this, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, they did not recognize him. One of my favorite movies growing up, and it's one that many of you have seen. It's not as popular as others. It's called The October Sky. It's a story about some kids in West Virginia, I believe. And they took these rocket boys, they called themselves, and they... <clears throat> took a hobby of making bottle rockets, and they just kept making them bigger and bigger and learning more about the science that went behind them. And you take these guys from this coal mining town, and all of a sudden they actually have a future, and many of them end up in NASA. 
But one of the boys, Homer, is the main character of the story. And one of the boys, he just has this passionate desire to learn so much about this guy, Werner von Braun, who's this scientist who develops rockets for NASA. And he has learned all about him. And one of the competitions that these boys enter their small bottle rocket in, and they've gotten better and better at designing, they've done test flights and everything else, and the more that they've designed this and they demonstrate and show it off, they're at the National Science Fair. And as they're there, Homer wins first place with his rocket. This is based on a true story. And who comes up to him and talks to him and says, well done, son. This was some great work. And the boy Homer is so caught up in the moment that his friends, they all pull him aside and say, what did he say? What did he say? And he said, good job. Didn't even realize that his childhood hero the rocket man himself, the guy who had designed all of these rockets, this Von Braun, was the one who had congratulated him for such a good job. And he didn't even recognize him. That's what is happening here in John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, though he was the one who spoke things into existence, the world didn't even recognize him. The world didn't even notice his light. Secondly, the world, his own people, didn't want his light. His own people didn't want his light. Verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but, he did not, but his own did not receive him. You see, Jesus could have come anywhere. God the creator is coming to earth in human form. He could have gone anywhere. Where did he go? He went to his own chosen people, and we've learned about this on our journey through Scripture, the way that God chose these people through, his, through Abraham and then reconfirmed that again through David, that these were going to be his people. That's what the lineage that we see in the first chapter of Matthew is all about. These were his people. So he came to his own. He came to his own land of Palestine, his own people, the Jews, and yet they did not receive him. They were particular people in God's particular land, and they were peculiar people selected by God, and yet, therefore, as he comes in, he ought to be at least like a soldier returning home from battle to his home, his home family, his hometown. They should have welcomed him with open arms. The door should have been wide open for him, the one that they had been waiting so long for. The silence of 400 years and waiting for him, the time had come, he was here. Even more, it would be like a benevolent king coming back to his own people, his own kingdom. This was the kingdom that he had created, yet he was rejected by his own. They would not receive him. The world didn't even notice his light. His own people didn't want his light. Your third fill-in is Jesus moved in anyway. Jesus moved in anyway. <coughs> Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. He's dealing with this fact of what his own were, his own peculiar people is now expanded. He said it's not who they were born of, but of, of God, the, the decision that they had made. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The message paraphrase, I love the way that it says this in the same verse. Verse 14, it says this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. It moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes. The one-of-a-kind glory, like father and son. He was generous inside and out, true from start to finish. You see, when Jesus was born, God Almighty, creator of the universe, moved into the neighborhood. And now we can virtually, we can go and stand at the mailbox or rake leaves and yell across the street to him. He is right there. He is in the neighborhood. We can discuss the bills when they win and when they lose horribly. He is in the neighborhood. We can have conversations about the new job that we are trying to get or didn't get or the distractions that we have in our life because our kids are running every direction or the pain and suffering that we're going through and these real difficult things that are going on in our lives. Jesus is in the neighborhood. He is right there. And that's what this is about. We can ask him those questions about parenting, taking a new job, Why? Because Jesus is greater than time. Jesus is greater than space. He is greater than the darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. So here's the problem with the timeline that is is written here next to me. You see, the bottom line of, of what makes this confusing is that if we look at this as light and darkness, this confusing idea that says, well, if I'm above the line... I'm in the light. If I'm below the line, I'm in darkness. And what ends up happening is we live our lives that way. It's as if we're in an ocean, and if we're above the water, then we can breathe, and when we're below the water, we can't breathe. And we live our lives this way, bobbing up and down, trying to find our way to say, I want to be in the light, but now I'm in the darkness. And you go back and forth and bind your way back and forth. And here's the reality of the situation, is that when you really look at things, We have this misconception, and I hope that you can see these things well. Heaven and earth, we see, when we're looking at it in this concept, we see them as entirely separate spaces. We make statements like, well, we'll go to heaven when he dies, as if we are here on earth and we can jump out and make our way to heaven. We, we, we get into a whole different world, a whole different place. But really, it's, it's a misunderstanding. At the end of the day, what we're talking about here is actually not heaven and earth as two different places, two different spaces, but really two different dimensions. And when we think about light and darkness, we read in Scripture as Jesus, he expands, particularly in the book of Matthew, and we see the Sermon on the Mount, he continues continually to talk about the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is now. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is in the present tense. And we learn about darkness as the dominion of darkness. And so we get this idea that we've got heaven, which is this beautiful place, and we've got earth, and it is darkness that is disturbed and it is broken. And if you've been on this journey with us through this sermon series, you see that. You see that in the Garden of Eden. 
you see that what was a beautiful place, what was created as one, was suddenly ripped apart and broken apart. And God in heaven is this beautiful thing. In earth, we are broken, damaged people. And so what we fail to see is the crossover between the two. And so the crossover between the two is where heaven and earth intersect, where heaven and earth collide. The two dimensions cross over one another. And what we have here is the world that we live in, the dominion of darkness, the earth that we know and we understand is this dark place. And yet, Jesus Christ crosses over. And so what we see is heaven and earth, yes. But there's this crossover between the two. And everywhere that Jesus goes, and he spends his life on earth, and you find that even you could look and you could even put little holes here in the darkness. Was everywhere that Jesus went, his entire time that he walked on the earth, he was shooting holes in the darkness. It was like he's walking around with a flashlight, and everywhere that he aimed it, it was no longer dark anymore. You see, in the Old Testament, we see that, that, that Jesus, that God himself was going to show and demonstrate himself in specific locations, specific places. We saw that at Mount Sinai. When Moses went to the top of the mountain at Mount Sinai, that was God's holy place. It was full of light. And then we see the tabernacle system. That there is In the tabernacle, there is a place that you go, and that's where the dwelling of God lies. And there's these animal sacrifices that are part of that, of being able to say, we're trying to create this holy space within the dark place. You following me? And then the temple is created under David and Solomon. And the temple is a more permanent space. But within the temple, that is where the very glory and holiness of God resides. That is where the light would be found. And yet the rest of the world remains dark. And what happens when Jesus enters the earth is he starts shining his light into the darkness. When those cross over, heaven and earth cross over. And what you see at the cross is this, this Jesus, who is the light of the world, is now in the world. And by being in the world, darkness goes away. And what you will see as you look at the book of Revelation, and you make your way there, and we will in this series, you'll find that the two, heaven and earth, are what? They are one. Why? Because that is in the end the way that God has purified all that he has created because he has poured himself entirely in the end, entirely into this world and purified it. His light has made all things new. And what we see after that is the only place for that darkness is hell. And we see that as an eternal darkness. But what that darkness is is the sin outside of God, that that darkness, that this earth, that this no longer has a place for that darkness. Why? Because God has transformed and made all things new, has purified everything. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sadness, it says, not because we have jumped out of this place into a heavenly place, but because God has made everything new. And the eternal darkness, the dominion of darkness, the only place for that is outside and away from God himself. Why? Because his light has shone everywhere, every place, at all times. What's the long story short? 
What's the main point? What am I trying to communicate to you this morning? Turn over to John chapter 8, please. John chapter 8. Jesus teaches this very clearly. This is after he has talked to Nicodemus. Your fill-in is this. Choose to never walk in darkness again. Choose to never walk in darkness again. John chapter 8. He's dealing with Nicodemus, and he has told Nicodemus a story of how you must be born again. Because the domain that you're living in, you are broken and damaged. You need this heavenly light. Verse 12 is where we're going. Verse 12. <coughs> After he explains these things. After he explains these things, he goes to verse 12, and he goes out and he explains to the rest of the people. Verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will what? Never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, there's no longer these little pockets anymore because he is the light of life. And this is how we live our lives. We will never walk in darkness again, it says here. And that's the story that the Bible is telling. You see, this is a compelling story. This is a story of love of God who had created all things and made them perfect. In the Garden of Eden, heaven and earth, it was all one. It was beautiful. Adam and Eve were able to walk with God on a daily basis. Didn't it make sense that now the same analogy was used? You will never walk in darkness again. Why? Because Jesus, God's Son, was making all things new. He was purifying all things, and he is purifying all things. And what, how do we do that? We choose to follow him. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, when Jesus says, follow me, he doesn't say, hey, come to the concert. I'd really like to have you there. Hey, come and have coffee with me. No, when he says, follow me, when he tells his disciples to come follow me and I will make you fishers of men, they drop everything in that moment and they run hard after him. It is a call to discipleship. It is a call of self-sacrifice. It is a call that was not for everyone because they were all afraid of what that would really mean. When he says, come follow me, it's not, hey, come join the crowd. It was, come join the few who are willing to follow me. Choose to not walk in darkness anymore. Because you realize the earth that we live in, this world that we live in, chooses to walk in darkness day after day after day. And yet, you don't have to. You don't have to. Choose not to walk in darkness anymore. This is the compelling story. When you sit down and talk with someone, this is the story of a God who cares so much about us, who, who has poured himself and put himself at the center of the story because there's no hope outside of that. This is the compelling story you tell. As the old hymn says, this is my story. This is my song, praising the Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. What's the story you're telling with your actions, with your words? Do you love Jesus so that there's this overflow 
that the light is visible in you. When Moses comes down off Mount Sinai, he glows with the light of God. He has been in the presence of God, and there's this overflow. As the moon reflects the sun, we are to reflect the love of Christ. So if you're here today this morning and that doesn't make sense to you, if that story is, is compelling you enough that you need to learn more, there ought to be people all around you and the seats all around you that are overflowing to be able to tell you that story. Are you overflowing this morning? Is that the story that you want to tell today? Is that the conversation that you are hoping that you get to have because you love Jesus so much that you want to shine his light out into the darkness. I pray that it would be. Each Sunday, once, once a month, excuse me, we have a time of communion. And as the communion attendees come down, I want to explain the reason that we do that. You see that the Lord's Supper, it's what we also call, it, is a time that we have to be able to bring people to an understanding of who Jesus is. And so we use these terms about the body and the blood of Christ. But those come back to that John chapter 1, an understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what his body would represent. And it is a whole lot more than a person who was a good teacher. No, this is God himself who gave himself for you and for me. It is a time of personal reflection. It is a time of introspection, a time of repentance. Why? Because we ought to be looking at ourselves and say, God... Am I the light into the darkness that you have asked me and compelled me to be? The Lord's Supper is much more than sipping a cup of juice. Here we have a dry communion. We use grape juice. There are other churches who don't. But if there's someone here who's coming from an alcoholic background, we would want them to be able to partake. We understand that that juice or that wine or that piece of bread in and of itself has no eternal power whatsoever. But what it represents is Jesus Christ who came to the earth, who interacted with us and changed all of history, not so that we can live a good moral code, but because when we cling to him, we are part of the kingdom of heaven being here on earth. And so this morning, as we come into this time, we want to give you an opportunity for silence. We'll play some music, and we'll, we'll be passing plates. The way that we do it here, we start in the front and make our way to the back and pass a plate first with the bread, and then we'll come back in a few moments and pass the juice as well. But in doing that, those moments are intended to be a time for you to think, to process, to be able to understand the beauty of what God has done for you be able to ask yourself whether or not you're living, living as a representation of Jesus Christ, whether you are communicating that in the story that you are telling this morning. The passage we use most frequently to look at communion is one written by the Apostle Paul. He writes it to his church, says, this is the way that communion ought to be practiced. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he is dealing with many different factions in the church. The, the whole book of 1 Corinthians is this argumentative church dealing with all kinds of sin in the church. They are the world. They are the earth that is dark. And yet in the middle of that darkness, he says, 
you need to pay attention to this. Let me talk about the light of Jesus and what it does to your life. Let me, let me tell you about the story of that last meal that they came together and how that transformed those disciples and how it transformed my life and how it will transform yours so that you can tell the story again. So the story goes like this, for I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. This is the story I was told I deliver to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And so Paul asked his church to be able to follow the very steps, the very process that Jesus followed with his disciples. And so that is the very process that we will follow this morning, beginning with the bread. song we could ever sing worthy of all the praise we could ever bring worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Oh, we live for you.
1 Corinthians 11, chapter 23 says this, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This do in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. The following verses, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper. So we will do that as well. And I will build my life upon your word. It is a firm foundation, and I will put my trust in you alone. And I will, I'll not be. Shaken, and I will put my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation, and I
1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. This is in the same way he also took the cup after, after supper, saying, This cup drink in remembrance of me. Do as often as you drink it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. We thank you so much for participating this morning in the Lord's Supper and Communion. The reality is, is it does take a few minutes, and it takes a few minutes for us to settle our hearts as well before the Lord. I pray that you've done that this morning, an understanding of the reflection of what it means for what God himself coming into our space, into our universe, really looked like and the debt of gratitude that we owe. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for this time. Lord, we pray that your scripture has touched hearts today that the gospel of John has resonated once again with us, that we would be a light in the dark place. And we thank you in advance for what you're going to do. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.